April 30th, 1976. candy bar. Well, uh, yes, we have had frozen Milky Way candy bars, and uh, for those of you who would like the recipe on how to make a frozen Milky Way candy bar in your own home, we would be glad to send you this recipe. Simply send your name and address to our gourmet, with an O and a U, gourmet, uh, here at this station, the WR New York. We'll send you that recipe. We'll also... Uh, Send you that recipe that uh, has gotten so much excitement lately. This uh, recipe we have here for uh, for uh, bourbon flavored taffy apples, which uh, caused a great deal of excitement when we first introduced this to our gang. Uh, they loved it. So uh, just send your name and address to Old Soak here in care of this radio station. Um, they're frozen, too, by the way, and they're delicious. Bourbon-flavored taffy apples. Delicious. And, uh, yeah, see, now you're beginning to listen. You suddenly got it. <laughs> Bourbon-flavored taffy. Oh, by the way, speaking of recipes, before we go any further, uh, this, uh, this night, of course, is, uh, is actually, uh, is actually confession night, because uh, uh, since uh, most of us are victims of the media, in one way or another, I mean, it doesn't make any difference who you are. I mean, even if you're Paul Newman, <laughs> you're, you're, you've been a, you're, your mind has been bent and affected and so on by the media. Everybody is. Everybody that's alive in the 20th century's head has been somehow uh, reduced to, at least one little part of it has been reduced to cranberry jelly by the medium. 
all the media together, you know, films and so on, and uh, theater and showbiz. By the way, speaking of theater, uh, somebody uh, the other day, uh, I don't know how it came up, somebody says, what's the most fantastically unusual play you ever heard of? You know, ever theater. Yeah, you want to know the most uh, unusual play? In fact, I can even tell you the name of the author of this play, if you can call it an author. But this play was done in the 1920s. Now, I never saw this play, but I read accounts of it. This play was done in the 1920s and caused an unbelievable uproar. People all arrived. They were wearing their their uh, uh, opening night the duds, you know, everybody's all dressed up and people were wearing corsages and they came in and there was a gold lame curtain, you know, the whole business of the theater. And this was at a very elegant theater in Paris. And uh, the people all had programs and they sat there very excited. They were waiting for, it was an opening night, of course. And uh, everyone was very excited. And then finally, uh, there, there was a little string quartet down in the, down in the pit. And they played the opening. They played well. Let's let's uh, let's try a little bit of the of the uh, not really exactly the same overture, but the same style. excitement went through the audience because the opening, the overture itself seemed to bespeak an evening full of thrills, tantalizing theatrical experiences. The house lights dimmed slightly, the music moved into the second chorus. ready to go up and in the background they could hear the machinery of the of the curtain beginning to work you know how it is when you go to the theater and the curtain rose on a darkened stage and everyone sat for a moment excitedly waiting to see what was going to happen and just at that moment from the darkness they could hear the sound of a what what they thought was the beginning of the play. It really was the beginning of the play. If you can give me a little echo chamber there, I'll, I'll give you an idea how it sounded. It sounded. Everyone 
everyone uh, watched the truck engine. <laughs> they waited. And then as the truck engine was somewhere, someplace, somebody had a, a an accelerator dot way back in the wings, he began to feed it more gas. And it began to go louder and louder. <laughs> Entire theater is filled with a giant cloud of carbon monoxide and gas film. <laughs> and just as the people start going out of their burk, <laughs> black burk, <laughs> the curtain came down and the orchestra began to play once again. And that was the end of the play. by the way, was modern civilization. And as the audience began to throw stuff up on the stage, screaming and yelling and setting fire to the seats, and the gendarmes began to arrive outside with their rubber truncheons, the play came to a happy and successful evening. Play that was that was from the that, that probably was the uh, the finest example of uh, of the uh, well the school of Dadaism. Uh, for those of you who are yeah it's, actually it was it was it was probably the greatest example of Dadaism <laughs> uh, uh, that uh, hit the the uh, theatrical stage at the time. And I always figured, you know, that was one of the best plays I ever read. It, uh, it really said it, I'll tell you. Well, listen, the Dada was famous for very many things. You know what, Dada, Dada was really uh, the discovery of the true total hip world. Dada, Dada was the beginning of all the hip world. And, uh, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, uh, that makes Andy Warhol look like uh, Norman Rockwell. I mean, you know, this is truly hip. For example, you know one of the great... Moments in the hip world was of that period, the Dada world. Oh, one guy, one guy uh, uh, committed suicide, and you know why he committed suicide? To play a joke on his friend. Well, <laughs> well, that's Dada. This is Dada, and of course, you know what Dada comes from. The word Dada, you do, of course. I'm not even going to tell you then doesn't make any difference. I mean, since this is a very advanced class, we will not tell you how, we will not uh, burden you with the knowledge of why the term Dada was used. Most of you know what it is. So why, why did they say Dada? Oh, you got it. Of course. It was the sound of a baby. Dada. And uh, it was the destruction of all art rules and regulations up to that moment. You want to hear that engine again? Let's hear that go. Oh. 
Nice sound. Nice sound, especially since... Oh, I'll give you one other little, uh, nice little touch that was made. This thing had had uh, a muffler, of course, and it had the exhaust. And the exhaust pipes were aimed directly at the audience. So it was no mistake that the audience was sitting there barking, yelling. <laughs> there was a guy that... Uh, that preceded the whole idea of ecological despoilation of the world long before it happened. Oh man! But uh, oh, oh, you or oh, listen, listen. You like the idea of that that uh, that play, huh? Well, I knew a guy. Now you know, if, if you're lucky, once in a while, uh, if you're lucky, not not everybody has this kind of luck. I'll admit, but I'm a lucky person in some ways. No, lucky in the sense that I have have. Uh, uh, well, as Lee Brown puts it, uh, she says, one day we're sitting there in the office. She looked me right in the eye and she says, you know what you are? And I said, no, what am I? You know, we're always uh, on the muscle, little things like that. See, I was expecting to get the truth again, which point I'd smash her in the nose. And, you know, the, the, you know how it goes. So I says, all right, what am I? Huh? Come on, try, try it. See, I close the door for you, yell it out. And she says, so you know what you are? I said, all right, what am I? What am I? She says, you are incident prone. That is correct. Some people are accident-prone. Other people are money-prone. It just comes in the window, Adam. Uh, Shepard is incident-prone. Through my life, I have collected incident. Incident has occurred to me, and it does. It really does. It occurs to me, I collect incidents the way, way a comb will collect lint. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, it's static electricity. So I'm, I'm always around. Something happens. See? So uh, I'm sitting in the H&H one day. And uh, this was some time ago. I'd just come to New York. I'm sitting in the H&H, and uh, I'm knocking down, uh, you know, the H&H, the Horn and Hard. I'd say, up on 57th Street, saying, I'm sitting in the H&H. It's a great Baroque H&H. It was designed by, you know, it looked like Billy Rose designed that one. It's really tremendous, and it has a balcony and all that, and carved uh, lions on the wall. Uh, the reason I like to go to the H&H is the only place that you got your coffee out of the wall, out of the mouth of a lion, or a dragon, you know, they had these silver dragons, and you'd pull a you'd pull a lever down, and it would be a dragon, and out would come the coffee out of a dragon's mouth. They're really great, silver ones. So I'm sitting in the H and H there one day, and uh, I'm knocking down one of my favorite H and H dishes of the period, which was rhubarb pie. Now uh, you don't get much rhubarb pie in New York. And I had some rhubarb pie, and I was having a cup of H&H coffee and just minding my own business, quietly working the Times crossword puzzle. And there's a guy sitting at the table with me, as it always happens in the H&H. He's sitting there, and it's a nice warm day, but he's got on a scarf, you know, around his neck, a scarf. And he had a look. He looked a little bit like a, vaguely like, a, if you can imagine, a vaguely uh, pixie-ish uh, kind of a curious, Andy Hardy, Mickey Rooney look. A funny little guy, see? And he, he's sitting there with this scarf on, and uh, he says, uh, did you pass the sugar, please? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So I take the sugar, and I pass it over. And he said, uh, thank you. And I said, oh, any time, sugar, any time. I said, uh, yeah, nice day, isn't it? Because, you know, we're sitting right next to each other. I said, yeah, nice day, isn't it? And he said, it is, it is. As a pause, he said, hey, 
face. Didn't I see you in a review, in a, in a show, down at a place called Down in the Depths on 37th Street in the Duane Hotel? Well, you know, any time you tell an actor that, he's going to blossom like a like a tree in spring, see? I says, why? <laughs> yes, indeed, you certainly did. He said, you know, that was really terrific. You were really very funny. You know, terrific. You're very funny. I said, thank you very much. He said, you know, I really enjoyed your work. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, I don't go to the theater that much. He said, but I saw it and it was really great. I said, thank you very much. And so that was it. We parted. A couple of days later, I'm back in the H&H. Here's the same guy sitting. Saying, I'm sitting down. I said, hey, I'm going to sit down with you. He said, oh, well, three or four weeks go by, and every day or so we'd sit at the same table. I never knew what he did. And one day I asked him. I said, uh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, what do you do? Figure, you know, he's a doorman someplace around there. He's just an ordinary guy. He says, well, he said, I'm a composer. I said, you what? He says, a composer. I figured he wrote, uh, you know, commercial jingles or something. I hear about composers. Oh, no, he's a composer, see? So I said, uh, hmm, very interesting. Now, I knew his first name because I'd been calling him his first name. He, you know, told me his name. Call me George. You know, I said, okay, George. And uh, up to that point, he said, well, listen, he said, uh, you probably never heard of my work. He said, but I'll, uh, I'll bring you... Some of my work the next time I meet you here. And sure enough, a couple of days later, he comes in and he has an LP, which he gives me. He says, here, he says, mate. he says, here's an LP of my work, and uh, I just hope you enjoy it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I could not believe it. Here I was sitting in the presence of a true enfant terrible. I mean, it's like if you're sitting there all day long having Sundays and eating hot dogs for weeks on end with this guy, and he says, oh, I'm an artist. You say, well, I thought you were. You got that funny mustache. And you say, well, what's, what's your name? He says, oh, that doesn't make a difference. Uh, call me Sal. And, uh, you know, weeks go by. Finally, he says, Sal, by the way, Sal, uh, is your first name Sally or uh, Salmonica? What is it? He says, oh, Salvatore. He says, oh, Salvatore, huh? Salvatore, huh? Uh, may I ask you what your last name is? Oh, Salvatore Dolly. You can just call me... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's like meeting somebody who's totally off the wall. So it turns out that this guy, of course I knew his work. I really did, see, but I never put it together with this guy. And and, and so the LP he gave me, and, he, and we got talking. Chris, I, had, I Then I immediately rushed over to the library, and I read a whole a lot of stuff about this guy. And he was a composer. Now, if you think that the engine, see, this was, again, this was back in his early days. He was about 18 or 19 when he did this, 1920, something like that, uh, back in his uh, his Dada period. And he was with all these French Dadaists. And he, he was part of it. He was one of the moving forces in it. That's what really threw me. He really was. And I said, you knew? Oh, I said, yeah. He says, I knew. Uh, yeah, I'll never forget the day that, uh, and he starts telling me about Picasso, his friend used to come over when he didn't have anything to eat, and Matisse, and all these guys. Wow, I was really impressed. And then, uh, he, you know, I, I wanted to ask him about this great event that I had read about, that I had uh, researched on. And I finally brought it up, and he laughed like hell. He said, oh, God, boy, is that some night. Can you imagine, in today's world, Something being written that is so dynamic 
that they wind up with riots. Now, I'm not talking about a play that's obscene, something like this. You know, we're just, I'm talking about something that, that just simply completely so blow Well, you can imagine what happened if they, the, when the people went to that play and the curtain came up and the motor, you know, and the smoke. Well, he, he was the guy that this playwright had based his play on. Now, it isn't very often when a, a musical event occurs, musical, pure music, that that the, the police come, <laughs> that they wind up uh, fist-fighting in the audience. Guys were fist-fighting, actually in the audience. And this was the, the opening night of his first performance of this thing, and he was conducting it. And it was done in a great opera house in, in, uh, in Paris with a complete orchestra, you know, 1,200 guys all sitting there in black coats and black ties with harps and everything else. And when this piece of music went on, it just completely was a revolution in its day. And, and it, by the way, they still can't do it. It was done in New York City shortly thereafter at Carnegie Hall. Now, I've played Carnegie Hall. That's a fantastic stage. You know, 3,000 people in Carnegie Hall. It was played to a packed house in Carnegie Hall, and the same thing happened. Fist fights, yelling, people hitting each other with handbags, screaming. Then came the police, and the wagons pulled up. And, and the moment, all right, I'll give you a little taste of it. You're sitting in the audience, see. And there you are, you've got your program. And the conductor comes out on the podium, and he goes, <laughs> you know how they tap, you know, they keep, you know, they tap like that. And you're ready for the opening bars of this great new work by this dynamic modern composer, which he is, a, well, was, he's now dead, but he was a dynamic composer. You can hear it. Taps twice. Raises baton carefully. The audience is prepared for the opening bars of this great, exciting work of music. And in the audience, by the way, was was uh, George Gershwin, all the critics, the whole crowd were there that night. And the lights go up. He holds his baton ready. And then he gives the downbeat. I think we segued into that. Just, just pick up the opening bars of this thing. Just, just, and, and they should come on full blast. Just let's hear the opening bars. Just the opening. Just the first couple of notes. Are you ready? No, 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 no. Wait till I give you the cue so I can talk about it. Set it back again. Is it ready? Just the opening bar. Okay. Hear that? 
actually in performance that was not you hear those those great chant boing 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 what he had out on stage uh, you couldn't see it apparently uh, until the lights were came up right he had about 25 giant anvils that were tuned and these guys were hitting the anvils with sledgehammers boing 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 and all the while the, the, the violins are playing and everything is going and these guys are hitting these anvils well, you haven't heard anything yet. Yeah, real anvils. Great big anvils. They went around and bang, bang, boing. Here, set that back again, and you can imagine what it would sound like with anvils. See, they're not using them in this production. No, that's not it. It's the beginning, Al. Sorry, it's got to be in the beginning. That's where the anvils come on. Always the beginning when I call for it. There it comes. Here it comes. Bring it in. Okay. Hold it there. Well, let me know when you've got it. So, okay. See, they were about eight anvils all rolling, like different sounds. And he used, he used an enormous uh, xylophone. You see that xylophone? The guy was running up and down, playing his xylophone, and, and everything was going wild. But then just as he hit the 20th or 25th bar, the, the real piece of music started up. And that was when the sound, a little echo chamber out, just a little bit. <laughs> Hear that roar? Well, what that was, he had set up on the back of the stage, on, on a stand, a Pratt and Whitney aircraft engine with the propeller aimed out at the audience. <laughs> well, I don't know whether you've uh, heard the sound of a 685-horsepower Pratt & Whitney aircraft engine uh, with a prop and the whole business on it uh, inside an enclosure. It is not only deafening, but it is one of fantastic experiences in the the. The, the propeller blew, you know you know what a propeller does, it blew a tremendous blast of air, and people's hats were flying off, and their, their wigs were flying up into the upper balcony, and their pearls were going under the seats, and, and <laughs> it was a true evocation of what he was trying to do. It was not a gimmick or a stunt. It was, uh, it was ballet machanique. Uh, it was a, 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 a musicalization, a, a total distillation of uh, the mechanical, technical world. Wow. And do you know this guy? And, and you want to hear more about him? His name, incidentally, if you're curious, was George Antile. Uh, fine composer, and we remained friends to the end of his life. And uh, he, was a, he was a listener. And Antile and I constantly were in, in touch. And I, I'll bet uh, there aren't many guys who can really say that they've got a record. That record, incidentally, was the one that George gave me. Uh, you know, you have, actually have a record given to you by a great uh, 20th century landmark composer, George Antile, A-N-T-H-E-I-L, Antile. And uh, he, among other things, is considered, I'll, I'll ask you a real piece of trivia, he is considered the father of the modern mystery story. Yes, sir, George Antile... Uh, wrote one novel, and he wrote it when he was writing this piece of music. Just he, was, he just wrote it for kicks one, like one 
one uh, week or something, he sat down and wrote this mystery novel. And uh, it, it, it is still considered one of the great mystery novels. And it was, it was, the, it was the kind of novel, it was the first hard-boiled mystery novel. You see, prior to that point, mystery novels were always a little genteel, the uh, Agatha Christie style. They were genteel, uh, they were uh, Conan Doyle, and, uh, you know, that type of thing. Or else they were really completely off the wall. You know, they were, there were stuff like uh, uh, Fu Manchu and that. And he was the first guy to come up with uh, the what could be called the Raymond Chandler School of Mystery. And all great mystery students know the name George Antebellum, but few of them related to the fact he was also one of the great composers. In addition to that, you want to hear more about him. He was he was he was considered in his day as a as really a, literally a kid. Uh, he was he was one of the three or four great uh, world concert pianists at seventeen and eighteen. He was a true enfant terrible. Yes, he was making enormous amounts of money all over Europe. He was performing these great uh, great uh, concerts, and uh, people followed him wherever he went. And uh, it was at that time. That uh, he had all these friends. He's, uh, he was he was the only one that was making all this dough. He had all these uh, artist friends, people like uh, Cocteau, uh, you know, people like you know, people that are just legendary names now. Uh, all kinds of painters and uh, people who uh, who at the time were were just sort of dabbling with things and trying to make it. Uh, guys that were, were playwrights, for example, like Ennui. People were just just beginning to to be heard from. And he was the one that was like uh, uh, the one with all the money. So he was buying these guys' works to keep them in li- in in, uh, in 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 their rent. So if he, he had friends, and he'd, he'd buy a painting, and you know he had this friend named Raoul Dufay, and uh, you know yeah oh yeah and, uh, and he'd buy these paintings, and and he had stacks of great modern paintings. Uh, painters that he had bought from them, from the painters, when they were just barely making it. Well, so all of this came out, and here was what was so fascinating. He and I used to go and talk about this at the Rikers Corner House, 6th Avenue and 57th. <laughs> We'd sit there, uh, yeah, 6th and 57th for hours, and he'd tell me these things. He never, you know, never any any ego. But I'd meet other people, and I'd say, well, you know, I have this friend, George Anthony. Oh, my God, Anthony! I'd say, yeah. He said, oh, ask him. He never told me about his mysteries. Said, ask him about that mystery he wrote. I said, mystery? I never write, uh, read mysteries. And so uh, that was that was all part of that fantastic world, of, of apparently, of that period, you know, the, the Dadaist period, the movement in, in, in Paris. Uh, uh, people like, uh, well, one of the great Dadaists of the period was who? Yeah. Well, Dali was a surrealist. Not a Dadaist. Well, Cocteau was considered one of them, uh, but there were others, and uh, Duchamp, uh, various other Dadaists, uh, that were, and they were all part of the same school. But the idea of putting a motor on stage, just letting it run. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, sorry about this uh, cultural evening, gang, but uh, after all, once in a while, you know, you have to dabble in the water there with the. With a really serious bass. Uh, that's the actual LP, by the way, that George gave me. Yes, Ballet Machanique. Columbia. Uh, 
culture corner. I've been there, friend. <laughs> you just keep thinking those clean thoughts. It'll work out over the weekend. Just, just you know, some deep knee bends. I'm asking, I says, how'd you get a hold of that Pratt & Whitney engine? He says, that wasn't easy. He says, tube as you can get. <laughs> I said, well, why Pratt & Whitney? He says, well, I tried for a light cyclone engine. He says, but uh, we blew the back end out of a concert hall in rehearsal one night with that light cyclone. We decided for the Pratt & Whitney. Stay tuned for In Conversation.